You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, his other wife, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, how many have gotten a rival from time to time in your life? Someone who just eats away at your spiritual life a little bit. Someone, yeah, thank you for being, anybody have somebody, it might be me, I'm I'm fine. That just, why'd you raise your hand when I said it might be me? I saw that. (laughs) Was it ironic timing or, is this somebody who gets you unsaved? Is there anyone like, anyone married? Like, we got this? All right. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? somebody's full of themselves today, okay? <laughs> After that, like, I, I, as a husband, I'm like, how could my wife ever be upset when she has me as her husband? Like, it doesn't even make sense. Am I not more to you than anything you could be possibly crying about? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Everybody say beside. beside. That is a key word today. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Glad my mom didn't make that vow. I have no hair. Okay. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed... Everybody say observed. Her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Alcohol is from the devil. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And now Eric will read a selection from the Gospel of Mark. Reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but is not the end yet. 
For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right around August, Dunkin' Donuts decides it's okay to put out pumpkin spice coffee and ruins the entire year because nothing is as good as the sweet syrupy pumpkin spice on a 97 degree day with the humidity and it feels like 103. But you could put ice in it. No, you can't put ice in pumpkin spice. It is for the fall. Stop putting ice in it. Sam's Club. Anybody like going to Sam's Club? They put out Christmas decorations in like September. Stop it, Sam's Club. I bought some though. <laughs> Our culture has a liturgy. This table behind me, David can throw it on up. This is one of my favorite liturgies of all time. We've been using it for about two months now. This is my brother Frank and sister-in-law Jen's table on Thanksgiving Day. And I cannot wait to be there in T minus nine days or however long it is. I cannot wait to go there. We have liturgies in our culture. Like my life was actually changed in that dining room, for real, for real, in 2000 when I came to this church. And it's become a combo, a combo liturgy. The liturgy of Thanksgiving, which is just fun to eat really well and to kid yourself into thinking it's okay not to count calories today because it's a holiday. And then the day after, you don't have to count calories because it's leftovers. And then the day after that, you don't have to because you're putting the tree up. And then it's Christmas time. And then for like a week in January, you try to get it together. And then it's like Valentine's Day is coming, so we're just going to eat as much as we want. And we, you know, Canada Day is here, Flag Day. And we just eat as much as as we can. We have liturgies all over the place that we readily accept. How many celebrate your birthday? Let's be honest. I think COVID has done something evil. How many celebrate a birthday month to six months? Let's do this. This is much more fun. Not everybody's as honest as Rosanna. Let's do something much more fun. How many know somebody who celebrates, like, like basically they're born in July? Like their birthday is July or August, not a particular day. It's the whole entire month. Does anybody know anybody like this? Yeah. We have liturgies. We have liturgies. And one of the reason why we, we, we traditionalize things is because God does. And one of the traditions begins in two weeks. Next week is the last Sunday of the Christian calendar and on November 28th, we begin Advent Week 1, and we begin our journey to Christmas time. And in the church's tradition, Christmas, the, the lead-up to Christmas is about remembering that Christ is going to return to this earth, or everybody say something like. He's going to something like return to the earth, because how many know God is everywhere? How many believe God is everywhere? So when you're everywhere, how can you return so he's going to something like return to this earth and restore it and make it whole. That's the yearning you have every single day. The yearning you have every single day is the yearning that God gave us to pine for him, to advent for him, to come and restore everything. And in our gospel text, you're starting to see the text get a little bit apocalyptic. Not one stone will be thrown down. There will be wars 
and rumors of wars, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and you're going to think this is the end, but it's not yet, but it's just the, the beginning of the birth pangs, birth pangs. So the liturgy is getting us to this season when we train our bodies to remember that we are a religion of hope more than we are a religion of quick fix answers. That's going to change the way you evangelize. We are a religion that gives hope. Christ is the blessed He is the blessed hope. We point people towards a better day, not try to make today their best day. Because when we do that, life can get disappointing very fast. But when we point people to a day that's going to encapsulate all days and make all past days the best day, that's our hope. All right. That's like half the sermon right there. So if that didn't do it, I don't know. I, at home, have a knee scooter that I scoot about the house on to not have to walk on my foot. And my driveway, praise the Lord, he blessed us with a house in 2020, and we are so grateful for it. Our driveway is a cliff, and it goes down towards the house, not away from it. Exactly what you want when rain comes, a huge cliff going down towards your house. And it's very, very steep. It's a very, very steep driveway. And I decided, because everybody's been helping me for so long, that I was going to get on my knee scooter, (laughs) scoot up the hill to get the mail, and just kind of scoot right back on down. This is why there's such thing as TikTok, you realize. Right? So I get up there, and I want, now see, I've been at our mailbox quite a bit, and it never seems so high off the ground as this particular day. Sophia's outside, which is the worst possible scenario. Jacqueline's in the backyard, and she's getting ready to come to the front yard. So I'm like, let me get down this hill before my wife sees me fall because I can't let her see that, because I'm the man, and I never make mistakes. You, know, you, you live with the same burden. You don't make mistakes. You, don't, you know, it's tough. You know, you never do. You never do. I live three houses away from you. You never make mistakes. And I start to go down the, the, the hill and realize the brakes on the knee scooter don't break this steep. So then I look at the grass, and here's the sermon. I look at the grass. And I'm like, we should go down the grass because it's flat and I can, I can, it's Ian cut my lawn. Thank you, Ian. He's not here right now, but thank you, Ian, for cutting my lawn. And he does a really good job. It looks like a golf course. It looks like a putting green. Jacqueline's going to hate me when I start mowing the lawn again. And I start to go down, but what I didn't see is a pretty significant divot that the grass lovingly covered up. So as the front of my knee scooter hits that divot, Jacqueline is standing in the front yard now, starting to yell, why are you doing this? Front tires go in. I go over the handlebars. Yes, all of this went over the handlebars. And to not land on my foot, I threw myself in midair onto my back and went, when I hit the ground, rolled one more time over, Sophia's first words were, Mommy, Daddy fell, ha ha. <laughs> Jacqueline literally stood there like she questioned the decision she made 11 years ago at this altar, saying, she, she looked at me like she should have said to her dad about the beginning, how about we turn around and you don't walk me down the aisle today? 
because I'm marrying a guy who fell on a knee scooter knowing he shouldn't have been on it in the first place. Thank you, George, for continuing to walk her down the aisle because she needed to help me up. I saw the grass and I didn't see what was under it. And I flipped and almost really hurt myself. And I wasn't even wearing my boot, even though somebody said you should be wearing your boot. You can see how I hurt myself in the first place probably, right? Hannah is weeping in the temple. And her husband sees her weeping. And he misunderstands her weeping and he says, am I not to you more than 10 sons? No, you're not. I love you. You're my spouse, but you are not the embodiment of the void that I have. And, and husband and wife, hear this right now. You are not the other person's fix. You are one of the vessels that God is going to use to bring healing into your spouse's life. But at no point can we ever insert ourselves as the fix in somebody else's life. We have the gifts to bring the healing, but only Jesus can fill that space. He misunderstands her, and he goes for a quick fix. Just love me and forget about that. But you cannot say to Hannah, you should just get over this, because Elkanah, my man, you're not a woman. You cannot possibly understand what she's going through. You will never go through this. Your body will never go through this, and you'll never be heckled like she's being heckled. So don't think that you can just give a quick answer. You can't. You're misunderstanding the situation, and you're making her vexation worse. But of course, when she gets to the priest, she'll definitely be understood when she gets to the church, because we always understand everything exactly right, right away. She decides to pray to herself, probably because she's so used to being misunderstood. She decides to pray to herself, and the next quick fix comes in. Look at her mouth moving. No sounds are coming out. She must be drunk. Like, first of all, what drunk person have you ever been around where their mouth moves and sounds don't come out? Come on, Eli. Anyway. And everybody who laughed at that, you shouldn't be around drunk people, so, hmm. We have work to do at the altar today. He tells her she's sinful. When you're in the thralls of ache, and heartache, the world is going to misunderstand you because the world, and especially the church, does not have a good theology for suffering. And so we think it's quick fixes. We think it's just turn to your spouse or read your psalms or just worship a little harder at the altar. And she is grossly misunderstood as being sinful, as being basically just this easy pushover who all her husband has to do is say one or two kind things. And her lifelong vexation is now completed and it's healed. And she sits there misunderstood and finally at the end called a sinful woman. Now... If you think that's just Old Testament, look what happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls on the church, and everyone starts speaking in tongues, and their mouths are moving, and sound is coming out of their mouth, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they are filled with what? Why is calling somebody an alcoholic always the first move? Hannah prays and no sounds are coming out of her mouth. Put the wine away. We start praying in tongues on Pentecost Sunday and we're celebrating in a way that somebody else isn't celebrating and so you have to cut down my celebration now and also say that I'm drunk. 
Jesus said, John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you call him a drunkard. Why are the quick fixes always accusation? And notice what it says in Acts 2. All were amazed. Everybody say all. Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others said they're filled with new wine. Do you see the two categories of people? Everyone was amazed. Some people said, what does this mean? Others reacted immediately and made an accusation. Some asked questions and stood in the mystery and waited. Others immediately had an answer. Elkanah had an immediate answer, am I not more to you than ten sons? Eli had an immediate answer, put away the wine from you. The, the cynics in Acts 2 had an immediate answer, put away the wine from you. It's the people who pause in the midst of what they don't understand and wait and listen that receive from God the healing balm to heal somebody's life. Some of you have been grossly misunderstood as being rebellious or not listening or not paying attention or being involved with something you shouldn't be involved in. And all the while, it's been real, actual clinical depression all along, and it's not even your choice. You can't choose joy. You can't choose your way out of it. And you need people in your life who don't just keep dropping fix bombs on you, but they need to listen to the story and hear your heart and your soul. And other, others of us at times, we're celebrating, we're finally happy, the Spirit has been poured out, and the same accusation is given, because when I'm happy and somebody else isn't happy, they got to cut down my happiness. they got to cut down my happiness and start making me out to be wrong also, because people can't handle Seeing something they don't understand and not knowing what to do to either, you ready, fix it if it's ache, or capitalize on it and bottle it up and keep it if it's joy. We want to get rid of the ache and we want to arrest and kidnap the joy because we don't want to think that this can go away in two seconds. And so we live often very misunderstood, but we also do the misunderstanding our culture right now is me on the scooter looking at the grass saying there's nothing under that grass surely it's flat I'm gonna go down the hill we see and we react to what we see instantaneously without any thought that's how our culture is we live and breathe and react off of what we see and we don't realize how unbelievably misunderstanding we are and how much we misunderstand others because we don't listen the opposite of listening is waiting to speak waiting to speak yes tell me how you're feeling now I'm gonna give you my answer that you had before the person ever even started talking. The story didn't matter. All the story did was get you to the part where you could give the fix. No. No. Listening. Some said, what does this mean, while others mocked 
There's no middle ground. There's either listening or one way or another. There's mockery. Well, Elkanah was mocking Hannah, and no one realizes it as mockery. But when he's saying to her, hey, I, I know I have two wives, but am I amazing? No! No! You have two wives. One of them's a jerk, and you're treating Hannah terribly. You're not good. You can't help her. Help yourself, bro. Help yourself right now. Quick fixes damage. Quick answers harm. Quick answers to long, systematic, systemic ache and pain and hurt. Some clinical, some situational, some circumstantial hurts. We, as the body of Christ, need to be Listeners, look what Jesus does in the gospel text. First, he sits opposite the temple. Now that little detail should intrigue you because a couple of verses prior, last week's text, it said this, Mark 12, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. Next story here for us in chapter 13, 1, it says... And, and he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So Jesus sat opposite the offering box, and Jesus sat opposite the temple. And I've personally heard sermons that talk about how Jesus sat opposite the offering box because he loved looking at who gave what. The word. He sat opposite the offering box, and he sat opposite the temple. And, and, and the way to understand it is if you insert a word that sounds the same, but it's different. He sat opposed to the offering box, and he sat opposed to the temple. He didn't sit opposite them so he could see them. He sat opposite them to show the dissonance and the dichotomy between the way he runs and the way those things are being run. He sat opposite the treasury. He sat opposite the temple to show you that his way and what's currently happening in that temple are very different things. So the disciples walk out and they say, see Jesus, look at these amazing stones. Aren't they beautiful? Reacting off of what they see. Jesus says, not one of these stones will remain up but every one of them will be thrown down. But two chapters later, he goes into the temple, and what does he do? He cleanses it. He drives out the wickedness. He calls the nations in and says, isn't my house a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves? It's a house for all people. Jesus, why are you defending the thing you just said you're going to tear down in the first place? Because Jesus doesn't live in the false dichotomy of keep up or deconstruct. He tears down the evil system in a thing so that the virtue of what it was always meant to be can live. Honestly, Salem, that's what he's doing with each and every one of you right now. 
there's a part of your life where he's saying, I'm not going to let one of these stones remain unthrown down. Why? Because he hates you? No, because he's going to throw down everything that makes you not you. He's going to throw down everything that makes you not know him. He is going to shake and pull up and thwart and burn down everything in your life that makes you unknowable to him and him unknowable to you. He doesn't eliminate, he renovates. But the disciples are enamored with what they see. If the temple's got beautiful stones, surely it's an amazing place. But the raving injustice going on inside of it is not a wonderful place. So Jesus says, I'm going to tear down what you have your pride in, and I'm going to raise up the virtue of what it was always meant to be. He doesn't tear down the offering box. He just shows that it's not the greedy and pompous that he cares about. It's the fact that they are exploiting the widows and nobody's noticing the one that God notices. He doesn't take away the offering box. If one of you thought, now I don't have to give, I have news for you. You still do. But we need to give with the widows and the poor in mind. We need to give as an honor, not as a show. He wants to throw down the system that thinks I can earn God's blessings because I tithe. My life is going to be protected because I tithe. He's not a mafia boss. If you give him money, he doesn't protect you. That's not how it works. Go on to Netflix and watch Angry Streets, a documentary on the mafia in New York. Most of us have a God without realizing it. Let me do it for you. We've treated him like if we pay him, he protects. That's Capone. That's not Jesus. I'm scared because every time I see Paul Carmine over there, and I just get nervous that they're going to whack me over there. So I, I love Capone, okay, and I love Goodfellas, and I love Casino. They're all still good. And the Irishman, nah, we'll see. Jesus is more than 10 sons. Jesus is the new wine that gets us drunk on the spirit. Jesus is the poverty that makes rich. Jesus is the true and only beautiful stone of the temple that was thrown down and became the cornerstone. And when we see all those other things, we don't see him the way that we are supposed to. Wars and rumors of wars. Oh boy. And then the end will come. Oh my goodness gracious. I, there's a lot to say about this, but tonight is not a Bible study, or this morning, now I'm used to saying tonight because we started doing midweeks. First, I want to say this. There are people who exist in Christianity who are excited every time there's a tsunami and an earthquake because for them, it's a sign that Jesus is coming back. And they're actually excited about it. That is disgusting. Let me set the record straight. There are people who are rooting and hoping that this vaccine is the mark of the beast because then Jesus is coming. Shut up. Stop. Wars and rumors of wars. Hear this sentence that I'm about to say. God does not cause bad things to happen for good reasons. God is the good reason that happens in all things that are bad. Tell your friends this. 
God does not allow bad things to happen for a good reason. God is the good that happens in the bad. He doesn't allow it to happen for good reasons. Like evil is not a tool in God's toolbox that he pulls out and says, oh, I know what I'll do for Bill Berlusconi. I'm going to have somebody die in his life because he needs to get a little bit closer to me. No, that's not what God does. But when somebody dies in our life, God enters that death and he draws people closer to him. Do you see that the devil is in the details there, literally? God does not make bad things happen so good things can happen. God is the good thing that happens in bad things to make bad things resurrect now and one day back into good things. It's what we celebrate every Easter. He went into death so that death would suffer his death and not be death anymore. He turned the tomb into a church. That's why there was two angels, two cherubim, where a body used to be, just like in the tabernacle. He turned the place of death into a sanctuary. This is what he does. So why the wars and rumors of wars? Why the earthquakes? Why all of these analogies? Because when good is pushing its way into the world, all the bad systems break. They shatter, and people try to hold on to their power. They try to hold on to their position. They try to hold on to their control, and it causes war, and it causes quake, and it causes things to shake because the goodness of God is saying to you, let it all go for a new kind of power, a new kind of prestige, a new kind of wealth, one that binds up the broken and lifts the lowly out of the ash heap and remembers the widow and the fatherless. But when that kind of goodness begins to crown, begins to push its way through into the small birth canal that is the world, all of a sudden it starts to push and displace a whole bunch of other stuff. And it feels like wars and rumors of wars and all this negativity. But all it is, is the good pushing in and tearing down the bad. Listen, right now in your life, Jesus wants to make room. And when he, make room, when he makes room, it might feel like he's doing violence to you but he's not doing violence to you. He's removing those things that you have fallen in lust with. And it hurts, but it's not violence because those things are violent toward us. And he's getting us out of our abusive relationships that we have literally and also metaphorically with things like our job and our clothes and our house and our decorations and how many vacations we go on, and all these kinds of things that we are now so deeply preoccupied with. Jesus is saying, I need you all to break up with those things. Because you don't see me as romantic anymore. You see me as the means to keep those things. Because you're so obsessed with what you're seeing. And we're misunderstanding people's pain. We're mis there, Jesus said, many will come in the end times and say, I am he. And when we hear many will come, we hear people. But sometimes a job comes along and says, I'm your Messiah. Sometimes a relationship comes and says, I'm your Messiah. Listen, for me, ministry, this job could show up and say, hey, Bill, I'm your Messiah. I have to say, no, it's not. This is my chance to proclaim the Messiah, but this job is not my Savior. Many will come and call your attention and say, I can save you. I can save you. Just do this. Just do that. Just have more of me. And 
Jesus is coming to break those things. Why? Because we need to be people who look past the seen into the unseen in the Holy Spirit and can tell the world that something is crowning, something is being pushed through that is going to heal in ways that you can't imagine. And here's the thing, we need to look like the beginning of that healing. We can't look like the people holding on to power, pushing polarized sides farther apart, making all these absolute declarations, drawing lines in the sand politically and everything else. That is not, that is not hastening the day of the Lord. That's pushing it farther and farther into the future. We have to call Jesus close by living lives filled and animated by his spirit. Think right now. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Think right now of the things that you've tussled and argued with this week that have pulled at your heartstrings. Got angry, irritated, needed to say something, last word, little post. They're so small. They probably don't matter. But it is the little foxes that ruin the whole vineyard. It is mustard seeds that turn into mountain-moving faith. What triggers us is a revelation of what God wants to heal in our life. But we have to see past what we see. We have to hear past what we see. Listen. Some don't see the world as bad at all, and they need to be told that things are going wrong. This is part of our mission. Some don't see that the world is bad. Some look at American constructs and don't see them as negative at all. They see the empire of America the same as the kingdom of God. They need to be told, tis not. Some in there, forget the big stuff, sometimes in our own home, we, do, as a husband, I will throw myself on my own sword. As a husband, I often walk around thinking, my dominion here is looking pretty good right now. Everything is okay. And there's hurt, and there's anger, and I'm not listening. And it's not that Jacqueline isn't trying to tell me, it's that she's done trying to tell me, I'm just not listening. And we can kid ourselves into thinking everything's okay, or if there's something wrong, it has nothing to do with me. Surely it couldn't. Right, Jeff? Like, if something's wrong, it's not us. It's obviously something else. We can kid her, and somebody needs to say, yo, things are going wrong. Wake up. This isn't right. There's somebody who's just, just needing to say something, but you keep giving quick fixes and burying what they need to say beneath the weight of your opinion. But there are others who only see the bad happening and are discouraged or far too excited by it. And they need to be told. The bad that is happening is heartbreaking. But Jesus is being birthed into the heartbreak. He's being birthed from the womb directly into a tomb to raise the whole system to newness of life. And it is our job to speak peace to violence. It's our job to name what is going wrong, to not just see it on the surface and offer a quick fix, but to name what is going wrong and to ask the Holy Spirit to show us a more clear view of the path forward. This doesn't sound exciting, but this is what makes life flourish or not. This is vegetables. This is meat and potato. This is not what we love on a Sunday, but this is necessary talk. We need to not react to what we see. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear beneath 
I've said it before. We not only need to speak in tongues, we need to hear in tongues. We need to hear in a language not our own. Because honestly, I can really, without any effort, I hear everything through my own opinion. And I think my opinion's amazing, by the way. And everyone should hear through my opinion. After all, I'm a pastor. We need to shut this down. And we need to hear things through the opinion of the groaning and celebration of the Holy Spirit in you and in every situation that's going right and wrong. Our Advent title in two weeks when Advent begins is going to be called Christmas Hope, Breaking News for News that is Always Breaking Things. Christmas hope, breaking news for news that is always breaking things. We live every day with news that shatters. The news we hear either gives us, at best, a little bit of a bump up. Okay, that was good news. Or it shatters everything. And I'm not talking about Fox and CNN. I'm talking about when the doctor calls. I'm talking about when the, the person you fell in love with comes home with news that they're not in love with you anymore. I'm talking about when your children come home with news that they're just not feeling this church thing anymore. I'm talking about all the kinds of news that we can hear. We need to know what is our Christmas hope that offers itself to news that keeps breaking things. Do we just join the breaking news of the day and just pick which side of the brokenness we want to be on? Or are we going to join an altogether different way, an altogether different news outlet that is offering the world a baby, that is offering the world an infant, that is offering the world something that is not a quick fix. It's something that has to grow from an infant to a toddler to a teen there's nothing about Jesus in the teens because I think if Mary wrote about Jesus in his teens, we wouldn't want to worship him today. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Everybody, put your, take your coats off. Sit back down. Here's a prayer. You can take a picture of this. Here's a prayer for Sundays before Advent. Listen to this prayer. Subversive God. Can I stop? <laughs> Subversive God. Yes, the God who enters your life to subvert what is happening that is keeping you from being your true self and what is keeping you from allowing the person closest to you to be their truest self. Subversive God. Thomas Akempis said this, Lord, before you ever conquer an enemy today, please reconquer my heart every day. Subversive God, deconstructing temples of power in which we would keep you trapped and tamed. Lead us through violent times, unafraid to speak for peace, untempted by those who promise easy answers, Elkanah, Eli. May we follow him alone, who renews the world in love, through Jesus Christ, who sits at God's right hand. And everybody said, let's close our eyes for a moment. You guys can come up here. You're going to leave here today, Salem, and you're going to see things, and you're going to hear things, 
and what you see and what you hear is rightfully going to cause a reaction in your life. And it should, because we're made for that. I said this a couple of years ago, and it, and it bears repeating. We need to live off of second thoughts, not first thoughts. Every time something happens and is said or done, you're going to have a first thought. More often than not, we need to let that thought go and pay attention to our second one. Before you send that text, before you make a decision about that moment, before you offer your fix, have the second thought. I want you to have, I want us to have Advent thoughts, thoughts where Jesus is birthed into our moment as an infant. <laughs> Why? Easy to receive and hold. And it doesn't matter if it was Jesus as an adult touching somebody and they were healed or it was Simeon holding an infant saying, now I've seen everything I could ever possibly see. It doesn't matter what stage of life Jesus was at. He had the same impact on everybody. So as we head into Advent, let's ask God to give us small, effective moments of hope to speak into situations where we would otherwise either criticize or offer a quick fix. Where we would immediately size up a person or a moment and say, I know exactly what this is and it's not good. Just pause. We are connected to Mary who gives birth to Jesus every day. Let him into your thoughts. And let him displace as he's ready to be pushed out. Let him displace that initial reaction. Oh, it'll feel like wars. It'll feel like an earthquake. It'll feel like tearing. It'll feel like everything is going wrong. I just recently had a conversation with somebody and I said, when somebody wrongs you, in order to forgive them, we have to get hurt twice. Once when the person wronged us and then once again when we decide not to seek vengeance but to say, I forgive you. It hurts twice. To forgive. It hurts our body when we got hurt, and it hurts our ego when we don't get to have that final word. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would truly receive the simplicity of this message, and that is when we see things that seem unbelievably perfect, like your disciples with the temple, or we see things that seem completely immoral, like Eli with Hannah, I pray that like Jesus, we would pause and wait for our initial thoughts to die out and for your thoughts to be birthed into our life. And then I pray for the courage to be able to act on them. And when we don't act on them well, I pray for the excitement of repenting and growth and maturity. You're not in a rush with us. You want to see trajectory. You want to see us get it right over time. You're not looking for us to be perfect tomorrow. You came as an infant and grew into an adult because you're showing us that you are content with our incremental growth. But I pray that as a church, we would be people who don't immediately react to what we see. 
but we wait for the revelation of the Holy Spirit to enter the situation and do our best to act on it. It was through the broken bread that you then said, through this broken body comes the blood of the new covenant. Brokenness followed by renewal. I pray that when we see the brokenness of the world around us, we wouldn't see something, we wouldn't ignore it, and we wouldn't celebrate it, but we would know that you're pushing your way into our world. And it's causing people to respond and react in broken ways. And I pray that we would speak peace to that brokenness. That our temperament and our body and our approach would be gentle, that we wouldn't break a bruised reed, that we would be gentle in our approach, that we would be full of your spirit, that we would follow the promptings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our life, that we would learn from each other, lean on each other, open our situations to each other, and not be reactive, triggered, angry, cynical people, or people who buy into something good only to get disappointed fast, but we would be people who move through life with endurance, at a peaceful pace, hearing the small whisper of your spirit. I pray this over every one of these precious people before me, Father God. And I ask that renewal would come in the world through this small church on Delavan Avenue, that in our slice of Eden that you've given us to cultivate, that we would bring your grace and your Christmas hope to bear. I pray that as we head towards Thanksgiving, our hearts would be grateful for what you've done, have done, and are doing. And I pray that we would enter the Christmas season offering the world a simple hope that you enter suffering so that suffering has to suffer you and come to an end. And as we enter suffering, that we would enter suffering and suffer differently with hope, with the oil of the Holy Spirit, with honesty, not masking it in Christianese or acting like it doesn't exist, but opening up ourselves to help. I pray for anyone in this room who needs help, that they wouldn't find it unfaithful to confess that they need help, but they would reach out to the body and receive your touch. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's let the worship team minister to us one more time. You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be.